Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, I have today the pleasure of introducing to you uh, Dr. Ruth Vanita, who is professor at the University of Montana, will be speaking about a, a fascinating brand new OUP publication called The Dharma of Justice in the Sanskrit Epics. Ruth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, we both contributed to the Indian philosophy and gender, uh, the, the uh, Blooms, uh, Bloomsbury Handbook. Right, right. That Vina Howard edited, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Vina Howard. So it's nice to connect a name and a face. Um, and I look forward to diving into this fascinating book. Tell us a little bit about the backstory. What prompted you to write this book? Why another book on the Mahabharata? What's the what's the story about this book? Well, I want this to be for general readers. I mean, scholars too, but but also general readers. And I want I try to write in a style that's accessible to everyone. Um, and I feel that the Mahabharata and Ramayana are often dismissed as Brahmanical, patriarchal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, whereas, in fact, they deal with issues that are being discussed right now. And it's remarkable how they uh, address uh, some of these that you would never think of. Like, for example, the question of, is it unkind to take away milk from the calf and drink it? So this is what we can talk about now, right? Uh, or uh, uh, just questions like that, or questions of consent. Uh, how, how do you decide to consent to us, what is what does consent consist of, um, friendship and family, lots of things. So, uh, so what I'm looking at specifically is debates in the text between different kinds of people. And these people are from all Varnas, uh, different genders, uh, uh, different age groups, and they are discussing a range of issues uh, related to life, uh, issues um, about uh, varna, gender, and species uh, difference, and questions of justice related to these differences. And also uh, other issues come up along with that, like disability, like age, like revenge, like power, and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, we cover a great many different types of monographs and collected volumes on the podcast. Uh, and uh, my, my my dharma as podcast host, as it were, is to, to look at the merits of uh, of them all in 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 a mode that um, befits a more general audience. In this particular case, I'll have to resist uh, the temptation to get into the nuts and bolts too much because, of course, the Mahabharata is a great love and object of study. Sanskrit narrative is where I live. Um, is it fair to say that uh, certainly um, what you say about uh, current issues uh, being reflected in the Mahabharata adds credence to the dictum <laughs> stated in the Mahabharata twice that what is not in the Mahabharata is nowhere at all? Yeah. Um, would you... Let's talk a little bit. Uh, I'm sure the vast majority of our audience will be familiar either uh, either from their own heritage or from studies or in passing uh, will be familiar on some level with the Mahabharata. We think of it as an epic text. Do you want to say a little bit about how you consider the Mahabharata? How do you how do you regard the Mahabharata? And a follow up question. Feel free to to address this in whatever order or fashion you see fit. Is would you say it's fair to say I sometimes describe the Mahabharata in continuing studies, um, teaching settings, as um, yeah, something along the lines of almost a conference of ideas, a debates that it preserves conversation? You know, would you address some of these ideas? Yes, it certainly, of course, is that. It's dialogic and uh, it's remarkable how many different kinds of people enter these into these debates, not just sages, but all kinds of people. And also, I think it's, I see it as a sort of treasure house from which people across centuries have drawn what they wanted 
to conduct debates of their own. My last chapter is on the Bhatta poets who are often still seen as if they are revolting against an Upanishadic tradition. Whereas I think, I, I demonstrate that uh, many of them, Kabir, Tulsidas, Rahim, Raidas, Mira, they are drawing from the epics and the Purans um, basic ideas, ideas of consciousness, ideas of life and death and rebirth, ideas also of justice, ideas of um, uh, gender justice and, and species and how we should treat animals and all of these things and weaving them into their poems. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, that's how I view it. And of course we know that the stories are told and retold, but I'm also looking at it as, as, a, as a treasure house of ideas, not just uh, stories, which is what very often I'm asked to talk about Hindu mythology. And I don't use that word mythology, but stories are important, but I think ideas are very important too. Um, without question. And then there are there are crazy folks like myself who like to distill ideas in stories. But yes, the, the, the interplay between narrative and philosophy is certainly rich in the Mahabharata. Say a word about uh, um, which text or text or translations you primarily draw on. Primarily, of course, Sukhthanka, but I also look at Southern, the Southern Recension because uh, Sukhthanka does leave out um, some uh, moments that have become over time sort of crucial, uh, uh, everybody knows, like uh, Draupadi crying out to Krishna, praying to Krishna when she's being uh, disrobed, for example. So, yeah. So for those listening, we've had um, other podcasts on the idea of um, uh, the production of critical editions. Uh, we had a podcast, for example, on uh, the Skanda Purana project that is ongoing, and we've talked about the Mahabharata uh, and the critical edition thereof. Uh, so Dr. Vinita is saying that she's relied primarily on the critical edition, but one of the um, boons of the critical edition is that um, it's sort of this um, uh, um, reconstituted uh, text hypothesis of of. Well, there's, there's much to be, I'm not going to finish that sentence because it'll depend on who you speak to as to whether or not such a text could have ever existed. But uh, whatever was excised was left in the critical apparatus. And so she's looked at some ep important episodes on the critical apparatus of, of, the, of the critical edition. And were there particular translations? I know you mentioned this in the book, but just for the sake of, of, of those listening, were there particular translations that you drew? I look at Ganguly, whom I use Ganguly, which I like very much. Basically, I like Ganguly very much, even though it's an old edition, but the language is a little... Uh, Archaic. <laughs> but it still, I think, is very good. And then I also looked at Bebek de Broy. Uh, yeah, those are the uh, main two. Then I looked at some others as well, yeah. What would you say, um, if you had to distill it, what is the central thrust or theme of the book? We'll talk about the specific chapters. It's rich, without question, but what is the central overarching thrust or argument? The central argument is that um, there have been debates from ancient times to modern times, continuing debates about uh, justice with regard to gender, with regard to varna, with regard to uh, the dharma, and that dharma is also, not only, but also about justice with regard to gender, varna, and species. And my final um, sort of uh, conclusion, one of my final conclusions is that animals, kindness to non-human animals um, is not, not total non-violence, but non-cruelty and kindness to non-human animals is the dharma that is foundational. And is, is also, my argument is that it is the dharma most available to all. Um, so when one is uh, relatively powerless, poor, uh, etc., one may not have the ability to perform many other kinds of dharma or justice because one doesn't have the power. But almost every human being can be either kind or unkind to some animal, bird, insect, etc. And that is the dharma that's available to all. Now, in this context, when you use um, or think of the term justice, do we mean here uh, social equality or how might we think of justice in this context? That is also a matter of debate in the text because Yudhishthira, for example, is always uh, looking for, to, for some, to some extent for equality and equity. And then uh, total equality is, of course, not possible. Uh, but um, uh, it's a question of 
doing the right thing in the and, and I think the texts are, are not trying to come up with some universal deontological principles. They are trying to uh, the texts are trying to look at each situation uh, and and see what can best be done uh, there in with all the constraints that the individuals there in each situation face. Uh, what you can do, which is the kindest thing to everyone concerned. So there's certainly this um, emphasis on situational ethics that's um, uh, so colorfully and brilliantly crafted in the Mahabharata with these impossible situations where paragons mm-hmm. of virtue have to do uh, questionable things, and that is the best possible mm-hmm. path. Um, but you mentioned in passing just now that um, in the Mahabharata, do do we see? Let me, let me phrase it as a question. Do we see a universalist ethics? Do we see sort of um, imperatives that even if for the sake of lip service are, 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 are lauded in the Mahabharata? Well, it's for us to draw out. And of course we can come to very different uh, conclusions, but yes, I think even what seems like an impossible situation, uh, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to relate to it. I teach the Gita and, uh, and we wouldn't be able to relate to it if it were not that our own situations have some relationship to that situation. The impossible is actually just a heightening of possible situations. The contrast between the conflict, for example, that Arjuna faces between doing the right, uh, uh, fighting, you know, engaging in violence that is going to affect his family. Uh, That's something that all of us, we don't have to fight a physical battle usually. Uh, Sometimes uh, we do, as in the American Civil War, for example. But uh, we often have to fight other type of conflicts uh, when, oh, the family will get upset what will people say if you do this, if you do that? And so there, there are these conflicts, right? Or the question of, say, um, taking revenge similarly, or changing us, changing sex, or the dharma of parenting, or a ruler, should a ruler be completely nonviolent, which Vidishta wants to be? And is that even possible or desirable? Is that uh, when you're nonviolent, uh, are you being is there inherent violence sometimes to other people whom you're not considering, as Yudhishthira very often is non- trying to be nonviolent to others, to his enemies, and in the process inflicting, I argue, a kind of violence on his family. So, um, yes. In, in your view, I mean, there's so much. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay in the lane of podcast host for public access. Um, but in your view, this central... Um, it's next to impossible to say that the Mahabharata has a central character, but certainly Yudhishthira's journey is very much um, uh, crucial to the central tale. Why do you think the epic has Yudhishthira always struggling with violence or wanting to take the nonviolent path? What do you think this is about? Well, he's one type of person, isn't he? He's one type of tendency that we all have to some extent, and one type of person who has an excessive predilection for this tendency. Uh, it's also to do with the fact that he has to be ruler. It's also to do with the fact, I th- I argue, that he's the oldest son and a bit spoiled and likes to sort of be self-indulgent, like in a different way uh, Duryodhana does. He's always threatening to commit suicide, but he never does so. Uh, and um, I don't see him as the central character. Everybody is struggling. Arjuna is also struggling of course, in the Gita with violence. My first chapter is on the Gita. I see Arjuna and Krishna together, which many people do, Sukhankar does too, as the central characters. I mean, the central character of characters, they're in a sense, one and in a sense two. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, so perhaps it'll be fruitful because the chapters are each so rich. Perhaps we'll go through chapter by chapter and you could say a word or two about the central argument or the episode that you're looking at. Um, so as you mentioned, after the introductory chapter, the first substantive chapter is about uh, Arjuna and Krishna. And so what do you point to or, or argue in that chapter? I'm looking at that section which is about gender, the, which is not usually paid, uh, to which a lot of attention is usually not paid. Um, the, when Arjuna says that if that women will, if we fight this battle and there are no men left for the women to marry, then women will be degraded by marrying people outside the Varna and the other clan, and then, then everything, the whole social order will fall to pieces. Now, Krishna doesn't ever directly, um, this is where women are involved centrally and genders involved. Krishna doesn't explicitly answer the question he doesn't say do this or do that because this is this but he does I think in a wider sense answer that question which is that you can't decide who other people will marry which actually as a patriarch has a tendency to uh, want to decide not only the, in the present but in the future what women will do in the future nobody can control that as many other t- 
elements in the Mahabharata show that the basic point that you can only do what you can do. You can't control how other people will respond to that, right? And that is up to them. Uh, you don't even know exactly what is going to happen. You can't predict. It's a mistake to think you can predict what will happen. Uh, and uh, I, I call the title is the chapter is Arjuna and Krishna friends discuss the family. And uh, it's about Arjuna's pred- uh, tendency, which is I think a common tendency of all of us uh, to think that the family is the most important thing in the world, the family and along with that, the community. But I think Krishna is suggesting a different perspective whereby something else is more important. Uh, and, and I think perhaps that can be called friendship in a largest sense, a friendship between the divine and the human, friendship for all beings, the one who cares about the welfare of all beings, that that is uh, perhaps more important than just the family narrowly conceived. The following chapter engages a fascinating question, uh, a debate that perhaps is very much alive today, the question of Varna, and the, the, the title itself, I believe, yes, the title is Varna, defined by birth or by action. So what do you, what do you point to or, or argue in that chapter? Then I just look at debates. I primarily look at two things. One is debates between different characters on this question. Is Varna something defined by birth or by action? There's that, of course, famous debate between the butcher, the guy who sells meat, and uh, learned Brahman. And uh, there's a debate between, a less looked at debate between a grocer, a bunya, and a Vesha, and um, again, a scholarly Brahman. And uh, it, uh, it, and at the end of these debates, basically the Brahman says, you are a Brahman right now because of action. You, even the person who is selling meat and uh, something which is looked down upon, you are a Brahman right now because of your knowledge and the way you are approaching your dharma and your action, right? So that's, then there are other debates. So that's what I look at. And then I look at um, characters in the text, uh, primarily Vidura. Uh, Vidura, who I think is the most virtuous character in the text and the touchstone of virtue throughout. Um, uh, so I said Krishna and Arjuna at the center, but in another way, Vidura is another axis. And those three together, Krishna, Arjuna, and Vidura, constitute the kind of the center, moral center of the text, and especially Vidura, who has great moral courage at various points in the text, who stands up for the right thing, and faces a lot of uh, disapprobation for that but he doesn't mind he he's he does it anyway and he's not self-seeking he is cheerful he has been very unjustly treated because he should have been king and would have been a very good king but he does not he doesn't live in a state of resentment and the, and he is uh, uh, the embodiment of dharma, basically. But he is what would be considered later as uh, absolutely uh, the so-called lowest uh, varna, because, or no varna at all, because he is a product of intermarriage between varnas, right? And which which many of the characters are, in a way, uh, of relationships, intervarna relationships. And Larry talk about that as well, that is there any such thing as pure varna? And then I look at Yudhishthira's wonderful uh, argument, uh, one sort of one argument that he makes, which is, which I really love, and this is what I mean by the modernity of the text where he says there is no such thing as pure varna what is anybody of how do we know that anybody belongs to any varna <laughs> and this here he is kind of the Kama Sutra kind of echoes the same idea that who has sex where when and how who knows that's what the Kama Sutra says and Yudhishthira says something very similar when he says all men and all women and any of them are having sex with each other all the time we don't know what they are doing and this is quite true right so you you think that you come from this pure varna where everybody belongs to the same varna. No, that's not the case at all. And we know that before DNA, DNA and even after DNA testing, we don't exactly, they certainly didn't exactly know who was who's, which man's child. And so where is the question of perfect purity? There isn't. There isn't any such question of perfect purity. Everything is mixed and uh, yeah. So using um, Vidura as a, as, as, as a case study, and I think it's a, there's a compelling argument to be made there, what, what would you say, what is the Mahabharata saying that, that he is virtuous, he is uh, Brahmanical, he is, is, you know, he, uh, is, the, 
is the Mahabharata critiquing his low social standing or how, how would you reconcile his social standing with his moral standing in terms of what the Mahabharata is trying to teach us? It's basically saying that it's a mistake to think that people's virtue depends on dharma, depends on their varna, because Duryodhana belongs to a so-called higher varna and certainly he does it all to Shasana, various people like that. And uh, uh, many of them, Shakuni, etc. And uh, Vidura as an example, not the only example, there's also Sanjaya the charioteer, a major characters. The name Sanjay is still a very popular boy's name, not for no reason. I mean, he is one of the exponents of dharma. So Vidura is also somebody who teaches dharma. He's not just embodying it. At various times, he actually teaches the king dharma. He gives lectures about it. So does Sanjaya. So throughout the text. So they are among the major exponents of dharma. So it's basically saying that so-called shudras can teach dharma and they do teach dharma and they also practice dharma. And it's not about being brahmanical at all. It is about dharma is something that is available to everyone looking, doing the right thing, looking after your parents, your friends, uh, standing up for the right, for the truth, etc. These are things everybody can do. And both Vidura and Sanjaya and others are examples of this. So the text is showing that, is demonstrating that. Also, it is demonstrating how other people treat him. When I said touchstone of virtue, how other people treat him shows you something about them. Duryodhana is very contemptuous of him, and that shows you something about Duryodhana. Krishna chooses to go and eat in Vidura's house and with Vidura, and not. To, and he says, I'll eat the pure food in, of Vidura, and not the banquet that uh, Duryodhana is offering. And he also takes the food from Vidura's house and distributes it to Brahmins, before they eat. Okay, so this tells you about something about the practices of the time and also what Krishna thinks the practice should be and how he practices. Uh, so, uh, uh, right. Well, it, it's a, it's a, a beautiful illustration of this, you know, from the perspective of orthodoxy, it's subversive in terms of caste purity in that perspective. But it, but what this is saying is that what that episode that you bring up uh, with eating with Vidura is saying that that no, it, he is the brahmana by disposition. It's his offering is pure because he's got the he's got the more um, should the samskaras, not someone who happens to be born in a lineage with it. Fascinating. Um, so. The next chapter is called Gender and the Dharmas of Singleness, Marriage, and Desire. What do you say in this chapter? So the next two chapters kind of go together, so I'll talk about them together. This is my earlier sure work. Sulabha, uh, on the female sage Sulabha, which I have kind of expanded here and looked at other aspects of this, this dialogue that she has with the philosopher King Janaka. So she's a female philosopher, she's a single woman, and I look, there are various single women in the epics, uh, and uh, she, uh, and I look at the dialogues that precede the one uh, that she has with Janaka, there are earlier dialogues as well, and uh, she asked the question, that, uh, and this was something that uh, sort of came to me by and this reading, I've read that dialogue many times, uh, which is, um, you know, what is a person and uh, what we call a person. In English, these words often get confused, person, individual, etc., etc. But in Sanskrit and even in, in languages like Hindi, which derive from Sanskrit, like the word vyakti for person, a person is really an expression, vyakti, to vyakta, abhivyakta, abhivyakti. So it is just an expression. And as we know, an expression changes all the time. So a person is something transient. Uh, the way you express, the way it is expressed when you are 15 is different from the way when you are 60, right? And uh, a person is, is only for this lifetime. It is transient. And everything that pertains to the person is including gender. So everything that pertains to the being, uh, including gender, is also transient and constantly changing. Um, and I also, sorry, I, I got a bit confused here. So four, five, and six kind of go together because I also looked at a de debate between Ashtavakra, a sage Ashtavakra, and another female sage called Disha, older female sage. And she, he's basically going to get married and he's sent to talk to her about marriage and desire. And she makes advances to him and he has to sort of think about this. And when he first sees her, he thinks she's old and ugly. So he's very easy for him to refuse this uh, engagement. But later, when she gives him a massage and feeds him good food and he starts getting attracted, then he realizes there is a different kind of beauty that she has. And then she appears to him to be young and beautiful. And then, then he has more difficulty resisting, but he still decides to resist because he's already engaged to another woman. And so it's a test for him, but she's also teaching him something about desire. Because when he starts off, he's very austere and very ascetic. And he says, or he thinks he is. And he says, I only want to get married to have children. 
and I don't want to have, I have no desire for anything at all, which the text shows is not true at all, is not true. He does experience desire and he has to deal with this desire and not just say, no, I never experienced desire. So that is something she teaches him about um, marriage. And she also teach, it also shows that an older woman who is unmarried can experience desire. Older people do experience desire. She's an old woman, she's single, but she feels desire. And uh, and she talks about the different, about marriage, that marriage, she, can't, she, may, she may not be able to produce children we can guess because she's shown as old we don't can say for sure because she's a bit of an enchantress and maybe that is just a disguise but uh, she does say that marriage can she does show that marriage can be for attraction and for fulfilling she says that she has an affection for him and attraction for him and she can offer him a hand in marriage and he says no 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 how can a woman do that a woman has to be under the protection of our father husband or brother so how can you be independent to just propose marriage and she says no I can I've always been independent all this wealth his mind you can have it so she basically proposes marriage and so here I would say that that famous or notorious uh, line from the Manusmriti often quoted quoted out of context that a woman has to be under the protection of husband father or brother a son sorry is demonstrated in the text in the epics not just here but several times to be incorrect just by just because of the of reality and as i said the theory is disproved by reality the reality is there are single women there were single women in the text and there always have been single women and if there is a single woman who grows old and she's not going to have a father husband or a son or maybe even a brother and so she is going to be independent and make her own decisions right uh, so that was that part of the text yeah um, Fascinating. So the next chapter you wanted to talk about probably would be because you you, couple, you covered a couple in, in in that section. So the next one, I believe, was uh, revenge, forgiveness and gender crossing. Correct? Yeah. So uh, so chapters five and six are about Suluba and Janaka and about that's where the whole question of consent comes in, because Janaka is attracted to Suluba when he first sees her. He's a married man and a king and she is a female philosopher. Again, he can't believe that a single woman is roaming around and making her own decisions. And he says, no, no, whom do you belong to? And you can't be independent, but she is. And then he, then when he uh, realizes that, he thinks some other king must have sent her here to entrap him. So he can't believe that a single woman would just want to come and have a philosophical debate with him he thinks that some king is sending her some kind of poison maiden you know there's that image of the idea of the poison maiden he actually uses the image of poison and that uh, I realize that that is what he is referring to the Vishakanya he thinks that she's a tool of some other king who has come here to uh, entrap him and uh, he then he feels attracted to her but he blames her for that attraction and uh, that she is enticing him so all of these things are handled in the uh, the text and Sulubha doesn't Sulubha retains the high ground. She is, acts, speaks in a very dignified manner. She doesn't get into all these things, but she demonstrates that speech, she basically demonstrates that his speech is not elegant. It is not the right way to speak. It's not uh, uh, expected from a philosopher. And she demonstrates in her own speech how one should have a philosophical debate. Then the next two chapters, seven and eight, are basically about Shikhandin and um, uh, about uh, re- the whole question of rebirth. And um, what I found fascinating in this is that uh, uh, Amba, who is reborn as Shikhandini, and then f- as from sh- being Shikhandini, uh, changes, uh, has a sex change within, within one lifetime and becomes Shikhandin. Uh, the rebirth question was very interesting to me because I just, I just uh, it was fascinating to me to realize that this is a great study of rebirth because the earlier lady, Amba, was had to deal with a lot of things. She had to struggle with a lot of things, with marriage and with the uh, with the man whom she wanted, refusing to marry her, and then being unable to marry, and with uh, feelings of revenge and anger and all of this. And she committed suicide in order to be reborn as a man and to take revenge. But then Shikhandini, she's reborn as Shikhandini, but Shikhandini doesn't have an easy time. All of that earlier karma and attachment is sort of, as it were, carried over. This is not stated by the text, but by reading the narrative, we can see this, that Shikhandini too deals with all these issues with revenge and with 
anger and with marriage issues and being a daughter of a king and how to deal with marriage and all of that. So the same thing in different forms comes back. Uh, also, she Kandali is born into a family that is driven by revenge. She's Drupada's daughter and the, uh, the sister of Draupadi, both characters who are driven by revenge. And she Kandali wants to take revenge on Bhishma. She doesn't know why. The interesting thing is she doesn't remember that she was uh, Amba in a previous birth. Nowhere is she, does she Kandali mention that. Other people know it. Bhishma knows it, but Shikandini herself and Shikandin, when she becomes Shikandin, never mentioned that that is the reason to kill Bhishma. She just has this rage and this desire to kill Bhishma. And it's a great description of how we sometimes feel. We have these unexplained feelings and the, the, the typical Indian explanation for unexplained feelings when you fall in love at first sight or you dislike somebody at first sight is to say that this must be from a previous birth, right? And it's a great demonstration of that because she just hates Bhishma and wants to kill him for no particular reason in this birth, but we know as the readers that it's from the former birth. Uh, then I also looked at Shikandin, Shikandin's masculinity. Um, Shikandin's masculinity is very different. I mean, there are various kinds of masculinity in the text. Shikandin is driven by rage, and this produces a certain kind of masculinity. Uh, and I go into the uh, details of this. Now, uh, there have been feminist interpretations saying that Shikandin is some kind of embodiment of the goddess because the name Amba means a goddess. And uh, uh, therefore, Shikandin is some sort of embodiment of the goddess trying to kill Bhishma. And some feminist critics have even said Bhishma is kind of the worst patriarch and demonic and this and that, which I totally don't agree with. I don't think Bhishma is the worst patriarch. You've got people like Duryodhana and Dushasana around. Obviously, he's not the worst. And also, Bhishma rules when he's ruling as a regent, as a king. He rules in close uh, alliance with his stepmother, and who has actually deprived him of the kingship. But instead of resenting this, he consults her about everything. He's the only king who is shown doing that, uh, uh, deferring always to a woman. So I don't think he's the worst patriarch. He's not flawed or perfect, but he's, uh, I don't think he's demonic at all. In fact, um, I uh, go into the language of the text to show that she, uh, it is the Rupata family which tends to be more demonic, not all of them, but Shikandin definitely is more than once called uh, 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 an embodiment, uh, having taken on some attributes of a demon. And I looked very closely at the battles that Shikandin fights, because Shikandin doesn't fight only with Bhishma. And Shikandin is really not the best warrior. He's consumed with rage and he keeps fighting these battles, but it, he doesn't he doesn't perform as well as many other many of the other warriors do. Uh, and then of course, as we know, he kills Bhishma, but um, basically under Arjuna's uh, basically, it's Arjuna who kills Bhishma and by using Shikandin as a shield. So it's not Shikandin who actually kills Bhishma. And so I go into all those uh, questions. But it's interesting, because in earlier work, I had looked at Shikandin's sex change as being driven by marriage, which it is. Uh, Shikandini is dressed up as a boy and married off to a woman and then uh, is troubled, is, uh, that creates a lot of trouble. And then Shikandini becomes Shikandin and remains Shikandin. And uh, the marriage is not repeated. So here you have an instance of a same-sex marriage, the marriage of two women, which when, once the, when the woman becomes a man, that there's no remarriage. They remain married, right? So that first marriage is still valid, the marriage of the two women. Um, but what is interesting is that unlike many other stories of uh, what we would call transgender uh, people, in uh, in in the epics, uh, this one is not really driven by love. There's no mention of love for the bride. There is a, a rage is is Shikandini's and Shikandin's overpowering emotion. Unlike say Bhangaswana, another person who changes from being a man to a woman and decides to stay being a woman because Bhangaswana says that women are more affectionate and women have more sexual pleasure. So they, he, uh, she would like to remain a woman and not become a man. But uh, Shikandan doesn't go into any of this. Shikandan also doesn't have any interesting dialogues with anyone. There's just rage-filled dialogues with uh, uh, speeches thrown at Bhishma, but that's it. No interesting dialogue with anyone, no reconciliation with the with Bhishma after Bhishma is uh, uh, lying on his deathbed. No, no dialogue ever with Krishna or with anybody. Uh, there's nothing very interesting about this character apart from just being a um, sort of a killing machine. So, yeah. Definitely a fascinating character. <laughs> Much to be said about Chikandin, Chikandini. And the following chapter, what, is it, what do you present? 
the following one is called Gender and the Dharma of Parenting. And I look at sort of the, uh, the different ways of parenting, specifically at Ashtavakra and his father. His father um, curses Ashtavakra when he's in the womb. And that is why Ashtavakra is born distorted in eight places. And then Ashtavakra rescues his father from death. So uh, without going into too many details, it basically suggests that one should not be angry with a child and treat a child like an, yeah, like just fling curses at a child and the kind of damage and the injury, in this case, it's physical injury, which could be seen as symbolic of the emotional injury and damage that one can do to a child through words, because he doesn't hit Ashtavakra or injure him physically, but it's just through words, through this curse that this happens. And then when Ashtavakra, uh, releases his father from death uh, through his intellect. And so this is an example of disability. Ashtavakra is what we would call a disabled person, but has in tremendous intellect and uh, releases his father from death. And the father says, this is why parents have children. This is why fathers have sons, that the son outdoes the parent. So he acknowledges that a child can teach you something. And it was because he refused to acknowledge that when Ashtavakra was a child and was teaching him that something right, was correcting him, he was furious at being corrected and he cursed him but the, and he learns from the story that yes a child can outdo a younger person can outdo an older person so it questions the simplistic hierarchy of older people are always wiser than younger people of, of parents or children parents should never be corrected by children and things like that it's certainly a fascinating uh, story it's uh, uh, there's so many um there's so many stories but it's one of my favorites this um actually ended up writing about it in uh, a recent book called The Stories Behind the Poses, where there's literally a pose called Ashtavakrasana, <laughs> named after this character. <laughs> Fascinating story. Uh, the next chapter, Citizens, Rulers, and Nonviolence. What do we learn in that chapter? <laughs> well, that's where I go into two or three things. One is the way the citizens participate in choosing a ruler. I thought this was very interesting. The citizens actually come out into public spaces and talk about it when they have to choose between uh, Yudhishthira and Duryodhana. And they have reasons for why they think Yudhishthira will be a better ruler. And Duryodhana is self-seeking and basically functions as this little clique of four with uh, Karna and um, others, and uh, they say that they want Yudhishthira to be the ruler. But Yudhishthira, instead of listening to them, uh, gives up and goes off to the forest on two separate occasions, um, right? And uh, Yudhishthira is always ready to go off to the forest, throw up his hands, give up, and is constantly threatening to also to commit suicide. He's constantly saying, I want to be an ascetic or I want to just give up my life. And many other characters, Vidura, Krishna, uh, finally even Dhritarashtra, have to dissuade him and tell him, no, your dharma is to be a ruler. It's a difficult thing to do, but you have to do it because that is your dharma. So, uh, so one thing I talk about in this chapter is the citizen's role, how they... Uh, they have a role in choosing the ruler, uh, but uh, the ruler may or may not listen to their voice. And then I talk about Yudhishthira's predilection for nonviolence, which is excessive. And he has debates about this with Bhima, with uh, uh, with Arjuna, with Krishna, Vidura, everybody. With um, even after listening to Bhishma, Bhishma teaches him at great length the dharma of a king. Yudhishthira, even after that, is again threatening to go after the forest and rolling on the ground and so on. So a lot of people spend a lot of energy trying to, uh, uh, to to stop him from, from this kind of behavior. But he never really gets over it. Uh, not entirely. He never gets over it. It's just his personality. And uh, interestingly, Duryodhana also frequently threatens suicide. Not as frequently as Yudhishthira, but he also does. Not for reasons of nonviolence, but just for reasons of feeling resentful and so on. And uh, then I also talk about how Yudhishthira's presenting himself as a nonviolent character is not entirely true because there is one one amazing instance where he is extremely nasty and verbally violent to Arjuna and he says to Arjuna I wish you had never been born just because Arjuna hasn't killed Karna uh, along the time sequence that Yudhishthira thinks he should have killed him so Arjuna does kill Karna but later and he he was he left the battlefield to come and check on Yudhishthira who was injured and Yudhishthira is furious and says what is the point you have you we are all waiting for you to kill Karna and you're not doing this I'm burning up with rage because of Karna. So he wants Karna to be killed and he imagines Karna's head lying rolling on the ground and so on. So his, his feelings are not that nonviolent. 
And he also then, when he finds Arjuna hasn't done what he wants him to do, he says, uh, you should not have been born. You are a, he, he, And to, for a sibling to tell a younger sibling that he should not have been born is really quite something. Uh, so I go in some detail into examining this dialogue where Krishna finally steps in and reconciles them. Then I talk about the consequences of Yudhishthira's somewhat crazy behavior, like right at the end of the battle, when uh, Duryodhana is the only warrior uh, left alive on the other side, uh, Yudhishthira suddenly, without consulting anyone tells Duryodhana you can pick any one of us the five Pandavas to fight with you can pick the weapon you can pick the person and if you win we will give you the entire we will give you the entire kingdom back right and at that point Krishna many people blame Krishna many scholars to blame Krishna for doing what they think are unfair for engaging in what they think are unfair tactics and this is a good example because then Krishna is furious with Yudhishthira and he says you have brought us back to the dice gambling table again because again you are doing something very foolish when you have made a bet. Basically, Yudhishthira is an addicted to gambling, as several characters say. And this is a bet he is making with Duryodhana. Okay, you win this one battle and we'll give you back everything. So you're going to, he's going to exile his brothers and himself to the forest again, leave the mother alone, leave the children alone. And Krishna says, how could you do this? And he really rebukes him, but now it's done. And that is why when Bhima is fighting with Duryodhana, Krishna tells him to hit Duryodhana's thighs and break them. Now this is uh, breaking the laws of uh, combat. And of course the, uh, the Kauravas have broken, broken the laws of combat many times, uh, except that they don't, uh, they've tried to murder Bhima, they've tried to murder Arjuna, they've tried to murder all the Pandavas by burning them alive. So they've done many unjust things. They just don't agonize about it. The difference is that when Yudhishthira does anything or the Pandavas in general do anything unjust, they agonize about it more and Yudhishthira agonizes about it more. So that is what, when, what I'm saying is that Krishna has to tell Bhima to break Duryodhana's thighs because Yudhishthira has placed them in this predicament where if Duryodhana wins, they'll all be exiled back to the forest again. So uh, whereas Krishna is blamed for this, actually, I think Duryodhana, uh, Yudhishthira, sorry, is more to blame for this for making such a foolish uh, bet. So. so how educable is Yudhishthira? <laughs> Yeah, of course, there's a famous book called The Education of Yudhishthira. There's much talk about Yudhishthira being this wonder. And I, I'm surprised by how many scholars are so admiring of Yudhishthira. Um, I, one tends to get more and more irritated with him throughout the text, at least I do. And I don't think he's tremendously educable. He's very self-centered. And I talk about the ending of the text, the absolute ending, where when the other uh, Pandavas all fall one by one when they're walking up the mountains, Yudhishthira gives an explanation for each one's fall. And that explanation doesn't really... Uh, is not in sync with what the text is saying because Arjuna is in grief for Krishna. He's grieving for Krishna and he grieves when his younger brothers, Nakula and Sayade, fall and therefore he gives up. But Yudhishthira says he has fallen because he he gives some, a totally different expression because he was over arrogant and he, made, he, he was arrogant. But that's not what the text is saying. So Yudhishthira gives these explanations and finally Yudhishthira is tested when he's taken to a supposed underworld where he sees his brothers being tortured. They're not really being tortured but he's shown that and there finally he expresses some anger on behalf of his brothers and he says why is Duryodhana sitting in heaven I don't want to be there with him he was a bad uh, person I want to be with my brothers and my wife who are suffering right so there finally he uh, he expresses some violence in the right direction, some violent feelings and some uh, kindness in the right direction to his family. Whereas throughout the text, he's been kind of trying to function in the opposite way of being unjust to his immediate family and trying to be overly kind to the enemy, regardless of what the enemy is doing. So maybe he gets educated right at the very end at that moment, I think. So not particularly educable, I surmise, in your view. Uh, very hard to educate, but right? I think. He... <laughs> oh dear! And, and everybody says that. It's not me saying that. Vyasa says that, right? At towards the end of the text, Vyasa says, "What have we been all shouting all this time and throwing our words through the air, trying to teach you what the dharma of a king is?" This is after Bhishma has spent like. Uh, huge uh, amount of time trying to educate him. And he's again saying that he wants to go after the forest and be an ascetic. And Vidura, uh, sorry, Vyasa, who's the author of the text, finally uses his patience and says, what have all of us been flinging our words into BI4 if you are still saying the same thing? And he says, you're behaving like a child in a childish manner, like behave like an adult. Yeah. Krishna says the same thing to him too. 
<laughs> there's so much to be said there <laughs> that I won't but we'll continue the conversation I'm sure um the the final substantive chapter is uh turning to uh animals kindness to animals uh the dharma most available to all tell us about this yeah here I just noticed that in all of the every speech about dharma that anyone makes all of them are, uh, in one way or the other talk of Sarvabhuta Hiterataha. Being a, pers- a person involved in dharma is one who is involved in the welfare of all beings. And we tend to forget, especially talking in English and uh, living in the modern world, that Sarvabhuta is not just humans. It includes all beings. And of course, the other beings outnumber humans if you take into account uh, insects and so on. So being kind to all beings, that is the mark of a person who adheres to dharma and, and including a ruler that's part of the ruler's dharma to be to take care of the subjects the people living in the territory not just the people but all beings and so i look at various narratives which and various dialogues which talk about this kindness to animals and there's these intensive debates about uh, what does that really mean um uh, when can you kill an animal? Can, should you eat an Should you eat animals? Should you uh, other, other kinds of cruelty, overworking animals? There's this wonderful uh, uh, narrative of the uh, bullocks being overworked, for example, um, um, uh, uh, hunting is talked about in great detail by. And we we all know this that in the epics and in the Puranas, whenever somebody goes hunting, usually some disaster. Rel- <laughs> it's, it's always whenever a king enters the forest, it's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. Buckle up. <laughs> hunting for sport particularly by kings and rich people particularly like and uh, hunting for food and hunting poor people hunting for food is different from rich people hunting just for fun and they usually end up killing some human or some human they thought was an animal or whatever and that shows i think the common vulnerability of all beings you you think it's okay to kill one vulnerable being why not another and then what results from that right um and fascinating uh considerations of this from three people of different Varnas. Bhishma, from the perspective of a Kshatriya, who comes from a meat-eating hunting group, and is considering the whole idea of giving up eating flesh, and how difficult that is for somebody who's used to the taste, because he says it's the most tasty, it's the most nourishing, etc. He says that, but uh, if you give it up, you are becoming like the mother and the father of all living beings. And it, it, it's this very moving uh, sort of statements that he makes, which is, if you do that, that dharma is equal to all other dharmas. I mean, it's like dharma of a, of a hundred years and so on he gives this very hyperbolical thing and then he makes this very interesting thing which I think is still you can still see it in practice which has always fascinated me which is that more important than even then being a vegetarian I think is the fact that in India uh, many most people and I include even here many non-Hindus um, and non-Jains uh, do not eat as much meat as people in other countries do. And there are various reasons for this. One is that the diet is a very mixed and balanced one. You have dal, you have vegetables, you have so many things. So you're eating small amounts of meat relatively. Uh, India still consumes, and I quote the statistics here, much less meat than other uh, countries like China and so on who have uh, comparable populations, other land spaces. And uh, the other reason is one that Bhishma gives because he says you should only eat the meat of sacrificed animals. Now, how often can you eat this animal? a sacrifice and then he says or if you do that or you shouldn't eat meat during the four months of i give he gives some particular times the month which is now called navaratri you shouldn't eat in that month you shouldn't eat on these days and we know that every family i notice people different families and communities somebody doesn't eat meat on sundays and wednesdays somebody doesn't eat meat on tuesdays i mean people have different days when they don't eat and they're for various reasons they're not eating it so it ends up in eating much less, is my point, much less flesh is eaten, because there is this consideration and this concern and basic, um, the sort of default position is that uh, it is better not to eat it. Uh, And this is Bhishma's position, but that's also the same position which is argued by two other characters, one from a so-called Shudravarna and one from a so-called Vaishyavarna. So both of them argue that. So from different perspectives and in different, the Vaishya is much more extreme than Bhishma is. He says that it should not be eaten at all. And uh, he also talks about other kinds of cruelty to animals in great detail, overworking them, etc. We touched on the final chapter earlier in the podcast. Maybe you could say a word or two about um, the uh, about um, famous interpreters of the of the of the of the epics. What do you say in the last chapter? 
I talk about Kabir. I talk about throughout um, because Kabir is well known to many uh, to many uh, people. But I also talk here about Tulsidas, about uh, and I quote Rahim and Ravidas at some Ravidas at some length, and also Mirabai briefly. Uh, uh, one thing uh, that they, they when they talk about justice, for instance, Ravidas when he talks about um, uh, justice and he critiques Varna and so on, uh, I'm arguing that some of this, a good deal of this, is drawn from the Puranas and the epics. It's kind of obvious, but uh, many people don't quite realize that, and they think that these are new ideas that these bhaktas are coming up with. Now, of course, the bhaktas give it a new turn and they use new language and they are referring to their own experience, etc. But they're also drawing from the categories of the past. For instance. They're all arguing, all of them are arguing that all beings have the same consciousness, the same Atman, and therefore there is no difference between them. Almost all of them uh, make that uh, claim. Um, Ravida, they also, what they do is also they construct a kind of history of bhakti. So Ravidas in unfamous in one song uh, lists all the bhaktas, great bhaktas of the past and the present, and he mixes them all up. And in them are many characters from the Mahabharata, including Arjuna and Vidura and Krishna, you know, all these people are included there, right? And so he mixes them up with his own contemporaries and his own senior bhaktas, right? So he's basically saying that in the space of devotion, everyone is the same. And uh, then they also make more specific arguments about... Um, in some famous songs about uh, Vidura is mentioned again and again, for example, um, uh, Tulsidas in a lovely, uh, at the beginning of the Ramchatmanas says that he bows to all beings in the earth and the air, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the various forms, 84 lakh species that are in the earth, in the air, in the water, he bows to all of them knowing that they're all Right? So he bows to all of them knowing that they're all full of Sita and Ram. They're all pervaded by Sita and Ram. So uh, there is, and all the bhaktas have this emphasis again on kindness to animals. Oh, it's very often, it's not noticed as much as it should be. They all talk about it. All of them uh, uh, talk about that. Do you adopt a literary lens throughout your analysis? Yes, I think I do. I'm a literary studies scholar by trainings in literary studies. So yes, I uh, look at the way tropes are used, the way um, tropes recur, and um, I look at the turn of the 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 way language is used and uh, the uh, those uh, sorts of things. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who do you think would most benefit from the book, from looking at the book? What sorts of folks, scholars? Um, I think general readers, uh, I hope general readers, and then as far as uh, who may not have read the whole text and therefore could find out here something new like I found out new things and so find like for instance this whole debate about milking cows for example was a new thing to me right so finding that who may find some new things and that they didn't know existed in the epics that's one in the epics and in the bhaktas maybe too so that's one set of readers that I hope will I hope they won't be put off by it being you know looking like an academic book but it's written as I said in very simple language and I put most of the secondary sources into the footnotes so that uh, you know you can read them if you want or you can go into all the details of those scholarly debates if you want but not if you don't want and then the other as far as scholars are concerned i think all those who are involved in the debates around um, uh, gender in the debates around varna um, and uh, gender sexuality varna <clears throat> And uh, and then uh, other sorts of debates like about Krishna and Yudhishthira and Arjuna and Yudhishthira and that sort of thing. So it might be interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Was there anything else about the book that you hoped we touch on today? Uh, no, I think we've covered it pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for appearing today. Thank you. Thanks for asking. For those of you listening, we've of course been speaking with Dr. Ruth Vanita on a brand new OUP publication, The Dharma of Justice in the Sanskrit Epics, uh, Debates on Gender, Varna, and Species. Until next time, uh, keep well, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating um, the relevance of the Mahabharata across space and time. Take care.